I mean, well, good, good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the latest event in the Brooklyn's Talks programme. I'm Harry Sherrard, and tonight's talk will be given by Air Marshal Black Robertson. He'll explain to us later how he got that nickname during his uh, Cranwell days. <clears throat> After qualifying in the RAF, he then served for uh, 33 years <clears throat> in uh, flying and staff co uh, commands all, all over the world, tours of duty in the United States, Germany, and the Falkland Islands just after the war. <clears throat> he flew all of the RAF's frontline fighters. Uh, the Phantom was his main fighter, but also Harrier and Tornado. Not content with that, he then became a helicopter pilot, and he then went on to fly Chinooks, which uh, must have been pretty exciting. Uh, on retirement, he then spent uh, some five years with British Aerospace, and then uh, set up his own uh, defense and aviation consultancy. So relatively recently, the family unearthed some memorabilia from his father's war years. His father was a Spitfire pilot in the Second World War, and that led to the uh, production of the, the book that we, we see on, on the screen behind me here, Fighters in the Blood. It's predominantly Black's own story, but it's interwoven with some fascinating extracts from his father's um, exploits uh, in the, the Second World War, taken from his, uh, his letters home. So it's a great read, uh, fascinating book, very entertaining, and I'm sure that tonight's talk will be uh, just the same. So please welcome Air Marshal Black Robertson. Okay. It's a huge pleasure um, to be here, and thank you very much indeed for the privilege of being invited. It's my first time at Brooklyn, so I can assure you it won't be my last. Um, those of you who don't know me, and I'm delighted to have seen a few old friends here tonight, might be under the misapprehension, particularly after what Harry said, that you're looking at a reasonably successful individual. You're not. You're looking at a man who failed. Um, the, I'm the face of failure. I couldn't make it in my chosen profession. And my father saw to that. He scotched my ambition to become a professional cricketer with two well-chosen phrases. You make no money, my boy, and anyway, you're not good enough. Any other ideas about what you might do with your life? I thought and said, well, perhaps flying airplanes might be fun. Join the RAF, go to Cranwell. His logic was absolutely simple. The man he admired most of all in life, um, and in particular in the Air Force, was a man called Brian Kinkham. And Kinkham was a product of the RAF college. So his logic went like this. If you're going to be any good at this flying game, you have to go the same route that Kinkham went through Cranwell. Sadly, I never met Kinkham, but he died in the mid-90s. But I'm on reasonably good terms with his widow, who must be at least 90. The wonderful lady, Leslie. Um, I sent her a copy of the book when it had been finished. First thing she did was send a card by return of um, post. Lovely, black, solid, bold hand. Thank you so much. Love the picture on the front. Haven't read it. <laughs> and I spoke to her again about, um, must have been six months ago, I was trying to secure Kingham's medals for the nation. And uh, we had a telephone conversation. She said, I've read it now. I loved it. Do you mind a bit of a criticism? No, no I didn't. Not at all. Don't like the title. I don't. I loathed it. But I was a, a, a new author, and in order to get the thing published, I had to go with what my publisher wanted. I call it um, like father, like son. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm going to turn this into a, a talk about father and son. You can hear a bit more about my father than me. I'm much more comfortable talking about him than I am talking about me. I'm going to tell you how the book got to be written, uh, talk about some of the parallels between his career and mine, and some of the differences. At 23, he found himself commanding 92 Squadron during the Battle of Britain. The reason for that was... Two squadron commanders were lost in a couple of days. One was a man called Roger Bushell. You probably know Roger Bushell's name. I'll come back to him. Um, one of the troubles when I give a talk, I, I tend to digress a bit, and, and Bushell is one of the most interesting people to digress about. But the point about Kinkham is that he was probably one of the finest of the few. There's no question about that. Father served under him when Kinkham took over 72 at Biggin Hill, and they were without doubt the happiest days in my father's life, let alone flying life. The man on the right, Geoffrey Willem, known as Boy Willem because he was 80, 18 when he went on to uh, 92, and literally served under Kinkham's wing. And Willem thought every bit as much of Kinkham as my father did. 
You've probably heard a lot about Willem. Just a couple of points to make. He arrived on his squadron with 168 hours total. He'd never flown a Spitfire, and he'd only flown 95 hours solo himself. It was a frightening way to do on-the-job training to enter the Battle of Britain under those conditions, because he'd never flown a Spitfire before, of course. The thing was, if you survived the first three combat sorties, you probably were going to survive the Battle of Britain. And statistics will say that if you survive the Battle of Britain, you were probably going to survive the war overall. If you haven't read the book that Wellham wrote called First Light, you really should. It's quite, quite spellbinding. There's nothing else I can say about it. Wellham also provides the link to how the book got written in the first place. The event that triggered it was the RAF's um, 100th anniversary fly pass over London. I was standing on Horse Guards Parade watching it. Magnificent, magnificent experience. Um, and I found myself standing in front of a Spitfire with two young men. And they were just about to start their flying courses. And they were wearing um, 1940s garb. And it made me think immediately of the Battle of Britain pilots on whom the RAF's reputation was really developed. And I also had a, a deja vu moment, because if I went back 65 years, I'd stood in the same place. My father took me up to London as a sort of short-trousered schoolboy to a Battle of Britain event where he sat in a Spitfire cockpit for the first time since he was shot down. He was shot down on the 20th of December, 1942, and it was 11 years later when he climbed into the cockpit for the first time. So. What that gave me as an idea was, look, if you're going to write anything at all, then write about what your father did and link it to what you did. Because I, I said I was a reluctant author. I, I hate um, books written in the first person. I hate um, biographies. I find uh, autobiographies I find really hard to, to digest. So I couldn't work out how anybody would want to listen to or read what I'd written. But having father's experiences logged into what I did seemed to me to be a reasonable way of being able to put down some of the things I'd done and make it quite fun. I had lots of material, too. Father left lots, hundreds of photographs. He left 60 pages of memorabilia. Um, he dictated these into tapes, and my brother gracefully typed them all out. He left behind all sorts of things, including this box, the top left well, top right picture as you look at it, is a box found in my mother's wardrobe just after she died in 2007. Inside were over 300 of his letters. I mean, what a treasure. The snag is that I was very reluctant to read them. I mean, if you find your parents' letters, do you want to read them? I, I, I didn't want to be embarrassed. And uh, the other fact was that father started writing these when he was 21 and mother was just 15. And, and I, I really didn't want to be... Um, embarrassed by sort of teenage love affairs. But once I realized that, okay, they were quite reasonable things, and um, he wrote in a sort of stoical, relaxed, uh, unemotional way, I realized I could extract great chunks from the letters, as well as st stuff from his uh, taped recollections, and really build a book out of it. If I had plenty of material about father, I didn't have his logbook. That turned up later. I did have my own. And that's what I had to use to trigger my memory. And it's funny, what you, when you go into a logbook like this, um, various sorties, various names trigger memories. And that was helpful to me. And, and the book eventually wrote itself. Sadly, I was also able to, as it wrote itself, see all the character flaws, too obviously, that I, I, I think I'd probably tried to hide during my, my service career. But looking back 20 years with hindsight, you can see things in perspective. I not only saw the mistakes I'd made, the short fuse I had, I could also see how, with hindsight, I could have handled things somewhat better. Um, one of the most interesting things was the similarities I began to pick up between father and myself. I'll deal with one simple one first of all. In all my reports, um, certainly the first uh, few years, there was a single phrase that summed me up. Does not suffer fools gladly. Until one extremely nice group captain said, why should he? Um, when I thought about that, 
it reminded me of what I read about Father. He got the most enormous rocket once for breaking formations in, in North Africa. He broke away from the main formation in order to have a go at some, uh, a gaggle of fighters that his leader had studiously ignored. They got back on the ground and Father got the duty rocket from the, the man running the formation at the time. Uh, and Father uh, refused to take it effectively. He said, if you can't lead a formation properly, then perhaps you should give way to someone who can. <sighs> Indiscreet, yes. Over the top, possibly. It was wartime. There were pressures on people. The interesting thing was that decorated flight commander was moved after North Africa within a matter of days. What I did have when I got all this stuff together was a complete story of, of Father from joining the Air Force uh, at Babacombe in, in Devon, working his way through flying training, working his way through 14 unbroken months on the front line. 14 unbroken months. Took me some time to realize how much pressure that must have created. And then after he was shot down, Kazovac moved back to the UK, and then some time on the ground here. Time he didn't particularly enjoy, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Perhaps the most important characteristic that Father and I shared, that became clear to me, was pure luck. He survived, I mean, he'd tell you that his greatest piece of luck was to be shot down and lose his eye. His view was, if I hadn't lost my eye, I might not have survived the war. So he was pretty philosophical about the loss of an eye. My luck began when I arrived at Cranwell. I shouldn't have actually got there because there was a typing error in my academic qualifications. I should have had two A-levels that I didn't have. And when they found that out in my second or third day there, um, they elected to keep me. I think they'd gone to the trouble of getting me there. But for the first term and a bit more, I'd never behaved so well. There was no way I was going to let the Air Force throw me out of somewhere I really enjoyed. If that was um, my first piece of luck, um, I had three other little instances early on which prove to me that, you know, Lady Luck sat on my shoulder most of the time. The first was I missed in midair by literally inches. It's the most terrifying thing I've ever had happen to me in an aeroplane. It went so close to me, belly up. I could see oil streaks. I could see almost the rivets under the wings. That was in a gnat. A couple of weeks later, I managed to roll um, my Morris 1000, flatten the roof by another foot, got out of it completely unharmed, and we weren't even wearing um, seat belts at the time. And then came a piece of luck I simply can't understand. I was on 8 Squadron at the time, and three of us were privileged to return aeroplanes to the UK. We couldn't fix them in, in the in the Middle East, so we sent them back to a, a unit in the UK. So we arrived at the first major stopping place, which was Merabad Airport in Tehran. At the same time, two aeroplanes came the other way. There had been some really bad weather, and this was the only break where you could get aeroplanes in there. And so two from our sister squadron, 208, were on their way back from the UK to Bahrain. It was wet, cold, miserable. I was the last person to be picked up by the BOAC agent who was handling us. And he arrived in this VW combi van type thing. And um, I opened up the back doors, threw in my aircrew bag, um, and made to sit on top. No, no, come in the front with me. No, I'm, I'm fine, I'll, I'll get in the back. Uh, no, you must come in the front with me. There's a nice bench seat, you can, you'll be fine there. No, no, I'll get in the back. There were no seats in the back, just bags. For some unknown reason, I insisted on sitting in the back. I think there's possible one reason for that, and that's that I was the most junior pilot of those five by a long way. Anyway, I um, climbed into the back. And by this stage, you could see nothing out of the vehicle at all. It was completely full of condensation. We'd gone about two or three minutes when a friend of mine called Tim Thorne screamed, look out, and there was the most enormous crash. We hit a Persian Air Force truck at 90 degrees. We rolled over sideways. Back doors opened, out came the bags, I skied down off them, completely unharmed, as were the other four pilots. Tim just got a bruised spine, that was it. The Indian who'd wanted me to sit in the front seat next to him bore the brunt of the crash. He survived, 
but he very nearly didn't, and he lost a leg. I run that through in my mind regularly, or, you know, if not daily, at least a week at a time. It keeps coming back to me, why on earth should I do that? It was so out of character, I'm lazy, I like my creature comforts. Why did I get in the back where it was wet and cold and miserable? But I did. One of the other things, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, I enjoyed while I was doing the book was research. And I found this quote, it's over 400 years old, and, and if luck doesn't explain how I got out of that nasty potential incident in Tehran, this does. That's the secret to any success I might have been lucky enough to enjoy in the Air Force. Um, I certainly wasn't a natural. I think naturals, gifted aviators, are very, very few and far between. I'll name you one, a fellow called Ray Hanna, but there are very, very few others. Um, so I, I, I developed a, a sense of sort of self-awareness. Um, I'm going to tell a story against myself now. In the States, there was a delightful Lieutenant Colonel Jack Loftus, who I got on very well with. He had an Anglo-Italian wife, who said to him one day, Jack, how is it that so-and-so next door keeps getting passed over when it's time for a promotion? I mean, he comes into work. I see him leaving home before you in the mornings. He's back way after you. He works so incredibly hard. How come he, he's never promoted? Joanne, said Jack, don't ever confuse hard work with talent. It was a, a line a little too close for home to me. Father's luck began on this airplane. He was cleared solo by Tommy Ellis, a man who had flown with Kinkham and Wellham on 92. He'd done 12 hours total, two hours solo, when at 100 feet, the engine stopped. He's got the River Humber next to him in a small airfield. He just got it back on the ground. Quite frightened, out came the engineers, out came his instructor. The engineers cranked up the engine, it started, and the instructor said, potter off and have another go. So he did, and the same thing happened. He was extraordinarily fortunate, but that tells you something else too. There was a huge pressure uh, in the 40s, early 40s, to get pilots to the front line. And there was a much more casual, relaxed attitude than, than there was in my time. But boy, was he lucky. His luck continued when he went to Kidlington um, to fly the Oxford. The thing about the Oxford, this is what they taught embryo fighter pilots on. Quite strange to me. Father was 23 at the time, and when he finished the course, they wanted to make him an instructor. He, this was the first time he came up against uh, Wing Commander Flying. He does it quite regularly. Um, but he took his complaint all the way up to Wing Commander Flying, and he got very short shrift. However, he'd made himself so unpopular and so well known that when one of his friends, who'd been posted to night fighters, said, I really would like to change my posting to um, an instructor. He was married and had, had a, an influence, obviously. They managed to arrange a swap. So Father took the night fighter posting, and this fellow took the instructor posting. Sadly, within a year, that instructor was killed in a midair taking off from Spitalgate uh, near Grantham. And in fact, he joined almost every single one of Father's closest friends in being killed during the war. He finished the course and should have gone to night fighters. But for some reason, when his posting notice arrived, it was all different from all his friends. They were going to a, a base which was flying bow fighters. He was sent to Harden in North Wales. Harden was the Spitfire OTU, Operational Training Unit. An inexplicable piece of luck and just what father wanted. Why was he lucky? I said he was lucky. He had an awful lot of pranks. Um, this isn't him, by the way. This is merely illustrative. The Spitfire was not an easy airplane to handle on the ground. It was described eloquently as a, a lady in the air, but a bitch on the ground, and, and that's for good reason. In the cockpit, you sat way back from the nose, which sat a long way out in front of you, and it obscured vision. So it was very hard to see where you were taxiing. It also had a very narrow undercarriage. Rather than being out here, they were like that, which made it somewhat skittish on the ground. And you compound those two problems when you realize it's got a massively powerful engine. 
So he put those three things together, and it was a handful on the ground. And the father started off by um, sliding off the side of the runway and being up before the wing commander yet again. That word there covers it all. Inexperienced, they said. And he was given a check ride. And the check ride came up uh, because there was still no two-seat Spitfires. In this aeroplane, the Miles Master. But what's interesting about what I'm showing you here is the, the name up there in yellow, top left. Johnny Freeborn was the guy who checked father out and said he was okay to fly Spitfires again. Freeborn is worth a digression. Uh, and I want to digress because I get to pick up Roger Bushell too. Freeborn flew more sorties than any other Battle of Britain pilot. Um, he was shot down twice. Uh, in the middle of the Battle of Britain, August, I think it was, he was shot down, back on the squadron, operating straight away. Tremendous energy, drive, spirit. And this followed being shot down in May when he, I think he was shot down uh, near Dunkirk. And he went back through the German lines to Calais, hitched a ride on board a, a, a Blenheim, I think it was, and came back to the squadron. Total dedication. Why? Sometime before, Johnny Freeborn had uh, shot down a hurricane from 56 Squadron, and his number two, Paddy Byrne, had shot down another hurricane from 56 Squadron. It was on the 6th of September, three days after war had been declared. Absolute tragedy because uh, Montague, Halton, Harrop, in the aeroplane that Freeborn hit, crashed near Hintlesham in Suffolk and was killed. They were court-martialed, and one of the lawyers who defended them, and they were cleared of any blame, it was put down to confusion between defense sectors. One of the lawyers who helped defend him was said Roger Bushell. Bushell is one of my heroes. Um, he was appointed OC-92. I told you that he was one of the first ones to get shot down. Um, and ended up being captured. He escaped, because he was shot down over Dunkirk. Um, was captured again, and spent something like, uh, I think, six months or so in, in Prague. Uh, was captured again. The people who had defended him and looked after him, they were executed. And he ended up in Solid Wolf Three, where most of you probably know, he was Big X, the man played by uh, Attenborough in the film of, of the same name. I think the great Roger Bushell has been sadly under-supported by this country. Um, he was never properly recognized for what he did, and to me that's an absolute tragedy. <coughs> Excuse me. He was eventually um, murdered, basically. Uh, he was one of the 76 who got out, one of the 73 who were captured, one of the 50 who were murdered. Pulled out at the side of the road near the RAF base, sorry, the USAF base at Ramstein in Germany. Bushel was put forward subsequently, 1949, by MI9, I think it was, the intelligence people, for a posthumous George Cross. In its wisdom, the War Office turned it down. I think that's a tragedy. It's no more of a tragedy than uh, the incredible women who served in the SOE during the war and were never properly recognized for what they did. Uh, there's a lovely story about a woman called Pearl Witherington. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. One of these um, bilingual people gets dropped behind the lines, knows five different ways of killing a, a man with a hat pin. Um, she, she couldn't get a, a a bravery medal, although she was absolutely worth it. In fact, she was put forward for, I think it was an MBE on the civil list. She absolutely refused. I said, my dear, there was nothing remotely civil about what I did. <laughs> There's a sort of footnote to this story, too. Um, another guy who was airborne with Freeborn at the time, I, I mentioned Paddy Byrne, he joined up effectively with Bushel in Stalag Luft III, but he didn't take part in the Great Escape. He had another cunning plan. He'd been there for some time, and he was working on his own um, escape plan, which was to prove that he was completely insane. 
And he did. In 1944, Paddy Byrne was repatriated on the grounds of insanity. He came back and proved it by going straight back to his old job in the Air Force. <laughs> Enough digressions. It's about time we went back and looked at some more of my father's luck. Next bit came when he was um, still at Harden, and this man was his flight commander. What happened was he basically hit the, hit the ground in a Spitfire, um, damaged the radiator under the starboard wing, and thought, another interview with the commander is coming up, I'm sure. And he came back quite petrified, thinking, that, you know, end of the course, I'm about to get thrown out. This man, Ginger Lacey, couldn't have been less fussed. So look, we can replace the radiator. You've learned a lesson. The Air Force needs pilots. Let's move on. Father couldn't believe his luck. Now, why would Lacey be like that? I like to think it's because Lacey has seen it all before. 27 kills by the time he was father's flight commander. Shot down or bailed out nine times. Um, no, sorry, shot down or crash landed nine times once into a swamp in France where he very nearly drowned because he couldn't get the hurricane canopy open. And he, and he bailed out a couple of times. That man had seen absolutely everything there was to see. And so he could see the bigger picture. So Father, once again, was extraordinarily lucky with the sort of people he worked with. Same picture, more of Father's luck. I did say it was a difficult airplane on the ground. The first one at the top there is his um, slide off the side of the runway. The other two weren't his fault. But they rather ruined Christmas um, in 1941, as you can see. They also ruined his arrival on 72 Squadron because he'd been transferred a few weeks earlier from Treble One. And the first bloke to meet his first prang um, was the new boss, Cedric Masterman, on 72. So Father arrived with a reputation as an aeroplane breaker. He worked really hard to prove that both the second and the third incident on this slide weren't his fault. They were mechanical problems and later they traced them to other aeroplanes on the front line. So he got away with it. But when that sort of thing happens to you, it's very hard to get rid of the sort of stigma. I got called black when I was 18, and no one's ever been able to change that. Um, Father may have ended up overall ahead of the game. His son didn't. What I want to talk about now, very briefly, I only dented one Phantom. Father wrote off two. We damaged one more with a uh, taxi accident, um, but he had two complete write-offs. One he jumped out of near Hayward Heath, and I'm talking to an audience like this some time ago, and a man turned out to have been the man who dug the engine of his aeroplane out of the ground, and we want to go back there one day because I think there's, there's more in the ground to be dug out. So, he lost that aeroplane, and this one here was the one that he crash-landed um, on the 20th of December, 1942. And the man staring at him, at the camera, is Roy Hussey. Quite competent, but that man owes father my life. Sorry, owes father his life. Um, I can talk about it afterwards if you like. But he was a very lucky man. He was the cause, there's no doubt in my mind, as um, the cause of father's demise. Another story for afterwards. He's, he was in credit overall because he shot down six and a third. He had another probable and three damaged. And all but one were fighters. And the other one was a JU-88. And if I add one other thing in to his story, he ended up very much in credit. He, he got two airplanes from nowhere. Uh, I told you I digress, quick digression. He was sent from Sukhelaba, which was his base, um, about 300 miles to the east of Algiers. He was sent back to Algiers with a damaged airplane. There was a problem with the main spar. Uh, and all he had to do was pick up a new one and bring it back. When he got there, um, the station commander wouldn't let him have a new airplane. Now, there's this pilot officer, Robertson, quite concerned that he'd been sent to pick up an airplane, but he hasn't got one. The station commander was um, uh, Humphrey Edwards Jones, I think. And his logic was quite simple. If I give you an airplane, all that's going to happen is the Germans are going to go and shoot it up on your base because you've got no defences. And Father's point was, we've got no defences because people like you won't give us another airplane. 
he was given short shrift. He's now moved up from being rocketed by wing commanders to being rocketed by group captains. So he bowled out of there, and where does, where does the pilot go under these circumstances? He goes to dispersal. And on the way to dispersal, he meets two equally dis disgruntled Australians, neither of whom have seen hide nor hair of a Spitfire for ages. So he picks them up, goes down to the hut, and he says to the sergeant, we've come to pick up those three Spitfires for 72 squadron. Yes, sir, says the sergeant. And with that, as fast as you can say a knife, they picked up three airplanes, went back, and squadron leader Bob Oxpring couldn't believe his luck. Three for the price of one. I said I, I damaged an airplane. This was a, a really stupid incident on my part. I didn't have any kills on my log, but obviously I got one damaged Phantom. Um, irresponsible, uh, a poor decision made at the spur of the moment, not something I've made a habit of doing. I landed at night from the back seat uh, just off the center line, and I put a, a delightful last lead-in runway light-shaped hole in the port flap. Had I been on the center line, I'd have written off the Vulcan cannon on the center line, which would have um, been awfully dangerous, and I'd have got a huge rocket for it. As it was, I got the most enormous rocket from a man called John Neville. I don't think I've ever been so scared. I mean, he, he knew he'd scared me because he sent me back to have a beer in the officer's mess afterwards, the, the combined mess, and he sent his senior flight commander with, with him, well, with me, to make sure I didn't top myself that night because it was a, quite a severe rocket. Um, father's luckiest, I've, I've talked a lot about his luck. His luckiest mistake um, came on the 18th of December, 1942. He was flying in a combined formation. In those days, uh, the four squadrons at Sukelaba, none of them would put a whole squadron up because they'd lost so many airplanes. So they put combined formations up. And Fowler was flying with a guy called Harry Chaz Charnock, um, a 37-year-old veteran, an old Cramwellian, and a warrant officer. There's another story for you. Ask me afterwards why a 37-year-old graduate of the Royal Air Force College is a warrant officer. It's a lovely story. Anyway, Charnock was very good. Charnock and father were the first two to see a huge gaggle of airplanes bounce them. They broke up and into them. Charnock took out two airplanes. He was shot down himself, crash landed, got back from behind the lines, another story. Um, father lost control. If you lose control at high altitude in the Spitfire during a dogfight, only one thing for it, you put it into a spin. It goes straight the way down to the ground. It's impossible to be tracked. You can't get shot down you're in a spin. Get to the underground level, beetle off back home as fast as you can. Which he did. Um, difficult because his engine was coughing and spluttering, because he had air in the in sorry, the air filter was containing dust. And he also in company with the, um, three Messerschmitts. Um, every time they opened fire, he could see. You could see the flashes from the, the wings, and he just broke into it because the Spitfire could still outturn anything, uh, but he could not run it. And it, this went on for quite a time until one of them was silly enough to get in front of him and get shot down. With that, the second one decided, I've had enough, I'm going home. The third was particularly keen and stayed with father all the way to Sukelaba, where he was finally chased off by one of the 72 squadron guys who was airborne. Father got out of that airplane absolutely drenched. He was as scared as he'd ever been in his life. Had no fuel. The engine was coughing, as I said, and he just lucky to be alive. As he got out, what should he find behind the cockpit? but seven beautifully precise bullet holes just behind the seat. And the seat was armored in those days. So he'd been extraordinarily fortunate. The link between Chaz Charnock and my father is this man here. Rudolfer was probably one of the most respected German aces, or they called them expertin in those days. Uh, Charnock was the 46th airplane this man shot down. Two days later, father was the 47th. A month to the day from Charnock's accident on the 18th of January 43, squadron leader Archie Winskill was his 51st. Astonishing connections, because father had worked with Winskill when Winskill was running 72 for a brief period. Uh, up, in, up in air. Digression on Winskill, 
claim to fame. Very few people get to get back to their own lines through the enemy. Winskill did it twice. In August of 41, he was shot down over France, and he came back down, down the rat line, uh, and eventually through Spain and Gibraltar, came back, got on with the job. And then on this occasion, he was shot down over the sea, he was rescued by Arabs and brought back through the German lines. Astonishing that the man can get through the lines twice. He's one of the very few people who've done that. Um, I have to say, I have a huge amount of respect for this man, Rudolf. He threw, flew throughout the war. But what an amazing coincidence. It's what research does for you. I talked about luck. I'm tempted to say that my greatest piece of luck was to get as far as I did on a strictly limited supply of talent. But I was given an incredibly good start. To go on a fighter squadron on your, on your first tour is about, you know, the, almost the zenith of one's achievement. It's just fantastic. The trouble is, though, we don't realize it. We're all vastly overconfident. Even Father admitted this afterwards, that people of his ilk, they, they, they were more confident than the, perhaps their ability allowed. I, I didn't realize I was um, as bad as I was. I was given just enough rope to hang myself, and just before I did, a very sensitive flight commander took me into his office. I didn't get angry about it at all. Just told me what the score was. I, should, I could basically um, sort myself out and, and I might possibly have something like a career or I go on the way I was going and I'd probably kill myself. Simple as that. When someone puts that to you like that, you've only got one real choice. And I, I thank George Aylett for putting me on the straight and narrow. I was a very lucky man. Another thing father and I shared was fun. And we found an extraordinary amount of fun on the squadrons on which we served. The fun factor for me was certainly greatest on, on 92 Squadron. Um, it's a, a fabulous place to, to do a squadron commander's tour. I was in Germany. Um, and father's most fun, as I said, was on 72, working with People like Bob Stanford Tuck, people like Kinkham, I've mentioned, people like Jamie Rankin. And that all happened for him. I was in Germany on 92. He was at Biggin Hill. Even in 42, two years after the Battle of Britain, Biggin Hill still had an aura about it. And for father, that aura was helped by the fact that things were really going well. He'd been um, commissioned, he was a pilot officer now, he got a car. He talked his um, Connie Freeman, his uh, girlfriend at the time, her father, into letting him have his car because he could get the petrol coupons. Um, he was getting as much flying and exciting flying as he was getting through his whole career. So it, they were the happiest days of his life. Um, he's very, very fortunate. Not just that, he got engaged to this woman he'd been writing the letters to all the time, and um, mother was able to get up to Biggin Hill pretty regularly. You, you've heard of the riotous parties. They weren't riotous, but they did live life to the full in those days. I've said the place had an aura. Anywhere that had Milan, Sailor Milan as the, as the wing leader, and had Tuck as the wing leader, it's going to have an aura, and it still had it. So mother would um, move from her office in London, jump on a train, come down for a squadron party, stay in a hotel, go back and go to work in London next morning. What's the problem? Do the same thing the next day. Trying to put this into perspective, um, I found this. These are Brian Kinkham's words. I'll let you read them. And they're on his reflections of the Battle of Britain. I think that puts into context um, everything there is to say about what it was like on a, a squadron during the Battle of Britain. Right? I talked about 92 being fun for me. Um, it wasn't just fun because I was the boss. I, I was joining a squadron with a fantastic history. Highest scoring fighter outfit in the RAF. What I'd forgotten when I arrived was that it was also the highest scoring outfit since World War II. Six months before I arrived, we'd shot down a Jaguar, one of ours. <laughs> uh, um, and so I, my third week, basically, was uh, bus mothering a court-martial. Uh, traumatic for the crews concerned, traumatic for the families concerned, but it's one of those times when you see a squadron wrap itself around people 
And we emerged out of it uh, incredibly at the end. Part of that was due to the fact that um, this man led for the defense. I have never met a nicer politician. Mind you, there hasn't been much competition, but this man was a very special man. Charming, self-effacing, intelligent, lovely to talk to. Um, he changed my whole attitude to uh, politicians and to the Labour Party, just for a short period. I said that squadrons were fun. Um, they were, but you shouldn't get the impression that all sweetness and light on every squadron. When I moved from 92 to 23 in the Falklands, life was very, very different. No families. The camaraderie was very different. We were on alert all the time. We were, you know, in, the, in this kit that was the most uncomfortable stuff to be in. Uh, we were living in a sort of wild west environment, uh, porter cabins and wooden huts. It was very difficult to get any form of squadron spirit going there. Very difficult indeed. I mean, it, and the hangover from, from the war was still, well, the war with the Argentinians was, was still there. Um, I, I went there hoping that I'd be able to generate the same sort of spirit. I, I was proved wrong. Things are different. And um, father found it very different when he changed squadrons too. The reason I say that was when he went to North Africa, he went to a really difficult base to operate from. No protection for the aircraft, just little uh, sort of holes in the ground into which you could hide things. Um, and he saw changes, changes in people. It was such that they found people crying in cockpits, people frozen, people unable to take off. They were back in the cockpit within days. No one knew about PTSD in those days. No one knew about it. No one knew how to treat it. But when you bear in mind the pressures, they were living in tents, cooking on, on stoves, fetching their own water. Um, and and the, the people bombing them had got some really nasty weaponry, um, butterfly bombs, which when you drop them, just shreds tents. So if you lay flat, you're OK. Right. The point of what I'm saying here is that I love squadrons. Father loves squadrons. But war changes people. Some people cope better than others. I want to talk a little bit now about um, what drove father and I. I've covered fun as something we both all enjoyed. I've covered luck. There's, a, there's another link between father and I, and I can't really put my name on, on my, my words on what it is. Am, ambition, I don't know. Um, his motivation was entirely patriotism. He joined up because he wanted to fly and fight the Germans. Um, admirable. But the difference between his motivation and mine was... It's hard to explain. He got ways of proving how good he was. If you look up there, there was a reassurance. If you shot a German airplane down, he put a swastika against it. If it was a confirmed kill, he put a red line down. So there was a way of being reassured that, yeah, what I'm doing is, is, is worthwhile. This is a sort of, I'm not necessarily ambitious, but I've got a feeling that what I'm doing here is worthwhile, and there's tangible proof that what I'm doing is, is okay. Tangible proof for people like me was, was very different. You know, all we had was sort of weapon scores rather than cricket scores. And my motivation in joining the Air Force was different from father's. Um, pure self-indulgence, I'm afraid. And it wasn't just flying. The Air Force gave me, I was very privileged, uh, a very good life. Once father reached his goal of becoming a fighter pilot, where did he go from there? Um, it, it's really hard to say. He, he wouldn't know. He, I think if he'd had his way uh, and not been shot down, he'd have stayed. I'd certainly stayed. And, and the next thing that happened to both father and I was he came back and went on the ground, and, and I went on the ground. And, and that's a, a point of difference. Father spent three years on the ground and became totally disillusioned with the Air Force. No camaraderie, no flying, 
no real characters all around him. He was an ATC inspector in, in Wales. Every ground job I did, and here's the difference, was incredibly exciting, fulfilling, fun. I worked with some very good people. So there's a massive difference between father and I there. The real difference comes now. Father became a Spitfire pilot, and he proved himself in the most difficult circumstances. He had zero training before he entered combat. I mean, he arrived on the squadron with 200 hours, 40-odd more than Wellen, but he'd had a Spitfire course. I arrived on my squadron with 550 hours, more than father flew overall, and that's before I even arrived on the squadron. He was tested in war. He was tested, and he survived, and in fact, he did himself huge credit. My worry has always been that I was never, ever tested um, in what I did. That's how he ended up. I ended up without a single operational sortie in my logbook. I'm going to go to my grave, not knowing whether I would have coped in the same way that my father did. And it's a, it's a real hang-up for me. Um, you can train all your life to be ready for combat. But if you never face an enemy firing at you, you never know whether you've got what, I think it was Tom Wolfe called the right stuff. I shared a flat at uh, Cranwell with two cadets who went on to distinguish themselves in the Falklands, a man called Jerry Pook and a man called Peter Squire. Um, two brilliant guys. They know what it's like to be shot at. They know they could have coped. It's my greatest regret, and I can go to my grave regretting it, that I'll never know whether all that training would have cut in. I'd love to think it would, but I just, I can't be sure. Right, let's move on. I'm going to finish up almost where I started. 20 years after I retired, I wrote this book, and it, it, it's, it's, when you look back on things, it, you see things in perspective, and I could see all those mistakes I mentioned, and I could see how I made them. I could see how I could have been better and, and done things better. Um, I was also struck by looking at my father's experiences and, and reading his letters and reading the letters written by his friends and reading the, all the paperwork. An entirely different life. The words they used were gentle. I mean, I've used the word patriotism. It's not a word you hear very often these days. These people were patriotic. And, and they didn't express themselves in the aggressive way that people do today. And it was a real pleasure for me to read all these, um, all these letters. They talked about patriotism, love and loss. Um, I thought in the end I'd, I'd done Father Justice, but I'm not sure I actually did in the end. So, because people have said, well, I read the book, but um, I'd like to know a lot more about your father, I decided I was going to write some more about father. And so, uh, I did. I had the same trouble I had with the publishers the first time around. Um, they wanted to call this something like, you know, Ace from Tunisia or something. But I, I'd learned a few things. I signed up with a, uh, a title I didn't like and then refused to go any further until they allowed me to change the title. And I'm, I'm happy with a Spitfire name, Connie, because it, it, it does what it, I wanted to do. It talks about mother, it talks about the Spitfire, it talks about father. The original title was an eye for the girl, but, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get away with that. That's the one the publishers had ditched. So, um, if you enjoy the first book, um, I hope that you'll learn more from the second, because that is all father's letters, his whole story told in letters. And for a son to have the privilege and the pleasure of editing his parents' letters to tell a story of which he's incredibly proud, I don't think any son could ask for more. I've probably said about enough. I'm sure I'm up to about 45 minutes, if not more. I'd be happy to answer any questions anyone's got after that. Yes, thank, thank you very much, Black. A very powerful story. And certainly having read the extracts from your, your father's letters, I'd echo the, 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 the measured, calm way in which he describes things. It's like he's, he's 
gone down to the hardware shop to buy a saw, but you know he's been chased by one one nines across the channel at, at zero feet and everything. I mean, the, the very measured way in which he describes his incredible adventures is uh, is fantastic. So I certainly look forward to reading uh, volume two. Um, any other any questions for uh, Black before we? I'm sure some, some, some questions over here. So I'll just come over here with the roving mic. While that question's coming up, um, a point about what Father did write. My mother and my brother's here, and he'll back me up. My mother was the princess of warriors. So her father had to aim off with everything he wrote. Uh, Black, I may have missed it in the intro, but I'm, I'm, why are you called Black? Um, and also, just a, just a, just a second one. Um, you say you'll go to your grave having never been tested in combat, but you've never had to kill somebody. What are your thoughts on that? Three points there. I'm not going to tell you how I got the nickname. It's in the book. Read the book. <laughs> um, father treated combat in the air as inanimate. It was a, a machine against a machine. And he never felt that there was a man trying to shoot another man. And that's, that's what comes out of everything I've, I've read and seen. Um, if you go to someone like Kinkham, uh, that extract I showed you comes from about a page and a half where he wrote a, a foreword to a book about his memories of the Battle of Britain. And he describes graphically what it was like watching people die. Uh, and I gave a talk somewhere about the Battle of Britain, and I couldn't find a better way of ending it than reading Kinkham's piece, because it's much better than I could say. And I was saying to Harry over a meal this evening, when I got to the end of that, there was a lump in my throat. I, I, I found it hard to go on. So I think people separate themselves. Um, if, if you think that someone's, there's a man in that airplane, uh, I've never ever felt that. I've only ever fought another airplane. That's all I've ever done. I'm not sure if it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, how would you feel about killing somebody? If you've seen your friends die, then I think probably that affects, and it certainly, certainly affected a number of the people that uh, father, father was with. Is that a fair answer? Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, Black. That was absolutely um, fa fascinating talk. Um, we do have a number of the uh, books at the, uh, at the back, of the, uh, back of the room. And uh, Black will be happy to uh, to sign those uh, if anybody would like to uh, to have one. And when 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 is this coming out now? The, uh, the 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 new book. That one's coming out, and um, they say the 30th of March, which means probably the, the spring sometime. Okay, but you you finished. You've done your but you've you've finished it. <laughs> <laughs> My publishers always said a book is never you've done it. A book is never finished. You can always improve it. But uh, sure, become coming out uh, early next year then. Okay. Thank you for giving me an easy time on the questions. Okay. Okay. Everybody would like to show your appreciation for Black this evening, show a fascinating talk. <laughs> <laughs>